to see so many enthusiasts for the history of the city uh, gathered in, rather crowded, gathered into this room. And I, I think it's one of the few occasions when I've actually had a prospective or some prospective members of the audience turned away. Um, so I understand why some of you got here half an hour early. But anyway, um, I should say that I got into Elm Hill by mistake. Um, and it, 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 nowadays in academic life, you're meant to put together um, a research, research design and then sort of make applications for funding bodies and all that sort of thing. But my experience with doing what I've done over the years on various aspects of the history of Norwich is it's entirely serendipity. And if anyone asks you to do something, do it, because something interesting will come out of it. And what initially happened was that um, um, the Norwich Churches Trust that looks after 18 churches in the city um, uh, that are, were emotionally redundant and uh, used for various purpose, other purposes um, said, could I do something on St Simon and St Jude that had become more available and accessible about uh, 18 months ago? And in one of those bursts of enthusiasm, which I still haven't managed to stop, um, I, I said yes. So I sort of started off at St Simon St Jude at the bottom of Elm Hill and then sort of thought well, I'd better get out on the street a bit and I started moving up. And then last year in the summer, um, Peter Hungate Art said, well, could you do something on St Peter Hungate? So I sort of started on St Peter Hungate and then I came out of St Peter Hungate and started moving down Elm Hill and sort of joined up in the middle as the two parishes do if you look at the um, uh, little parish plaques uh, that, that you've got there. So that's how I got into Elm Hill historically. And I got terribly excited about a lot of things that have turned up that I think are really rather interesting and also that much more interesting because I'm not sure anyone else has noticed them before. Now, you could say, um, you know, are you getting overly, well, I usually am getting overly excited, but, um, you know, there's been a lot written about Elm Hill. And so, you know, if you look in the Heritage Library, uh, as you can see some of these things from the Heritage Library, um, uh, if you look in the Heritage Library, they've got a lot of little histories and pamphlets on um, Elm Hill. And of course, um, last year, um, if you watch Channel 4, is it? Um, last year, um, Professor Roberts was in Norwich telling us what a historic city we got. And at least three or four times walking up and down Elm Hill and saying how Tudor it was and how after the great fire of 1507 they weren't allowed to thatch it anymore but they will be had thereafter to put slate on their roofs. Really Professor Roberts, slate in Norwich in the 16th century? Does she know anything about geology? Well apparently not. Anyway, um, so I, you had a, and of course the latest thing is when yeah, I think in the summer, Elm Hill was closed off for a week, was it? Um, uh, for and and that's going to be the next next net Netflix blockbuster. I'm told. Yeah, some people know all about this. I can see heads wobbling in, in agreement. So you would have thought that um, Elm Hill had been pretty well covered, um, but I think that um, I, I'd like to suggest um, uh, that. Uh, it, it, it is, oh, someone else is trying to break in. Um, that um, I, I want the, that um, <clears throat> I want to look at the issue of the ups and downs of Elm Hill in, in a particular way. 
And that's the way in which the volatile economic and social fortunes that Elm Hill has experienced over time, because that's one of its ups and downs. So it's not just that it's up and down in terms of uh, uh, being a hill. Um, and I want to do that because I think, apart from everything else, in some ways it's really quite interesting to take a small place or a small area or a particular street or a parish and then try and work out from that to the larger history of a larger place. So if we take, I'm going to argue in a moment, Elm Hill isn't typical of Norwich, but if we take it and then try and work out into the larger history of the city. Um, and I'm going to um, try and uh, do that um, by, as it were, presenting the history of the city um, uh, through touching on, only touching on the lives of individuals, but particularly seeing it in the changing fortunes of its buildings, um, and then trying to link it with aspects of the history of the city as a whole. Um, and in doing that, I want to look at the history of the city, as it, or history of the street, as it were, uh, in five chapters. And the first of those is some words about the history of Elm Hill and adjacent uh, properties um, before around about 1500. And then I want to talk about what I've christened the Great Rebuilding that followed on the Great Fire uh, of 1507. Um, and then the types of houses and people who came to occupy Elm Hill, and I'm going to argue gave it a particular character, that means that it's not really typical of most other areas of the city. And then I want to move on to look at the 18th century, the late 17th, the early 18th century, when what you get in Elm Hill is a process of what I call classicization, when the city becomes, as it were, um, an enlightenment city. And in that process, uh, uh, it, uh, uh, it changes it or tries to change its physical appearance, a sort of hand-me-down bath uh, or Edinburgh, as it were. Um, so we get the process of classification, and that gives it quite <coughs> much, much of the appearance that it has today, despite people wandering up and down saying how Tudor it is, which is in structures. And then, of course, there's Elm Hill on skids. And this is when the city, uh, the, the street and the city as a whole, um, it really hit some bad times in the 18th and the 19th centuries, um, up until the mid-20th century, when, uh, as most of you, I guess, will know, um, by a single vote of the leader of the council in the mid-1920s, they decided not to demolish what were then the slums on Elm Hill as they demolished most of them elsewhere. And then finally, and I probably, I may not get there in terms of time, and you've probably got things to run off to, but um, I may say a few things towards the end about what I call historicization, the way that um, from really the beginning of the 20th century, Elm Hill is a focus, and the areas around Elm Hill, particularly the bottom Elm Hill, become a place which become a focus um, for what I call the historicization of knowledge, a self-consciousness about the city's past. Okay. Then if we <coughs> try and say something about before the Great Fire, and I'm not going all the way back and talking about early settlements and Anglo-Saxon this and that, um, because it would take far too long. But I do want to say some, a couple of things about uh, the, the city, about the street, and two aspects of the street, really, before the Great Fire. And one of them, uh, one of the things to say uh, is to point out something that I started working on, I published something on in 2016, and which I think has been a neglected aspect of the history of the city. And that is the way in which the 
city had resident within it many, many gentry who had, as it were, city houses. Uh, and before the Reformation, it also had present a lot of people who were representatives of the great monastic houses that were out in the county as well. And in the case of Elm Hill, in particular, at the top of Elm Hill in St. Peter Hungate, which itself is a church that is rebuilt in another great rebuilding, which is the great rebuilding of churches in the 15th and early 16th centuries in Norwich. But that's rebuilt partly by uh, local benefactions, by the chap who pays for the... Um, the, the, the um, porch here um, but it is the chancel and the nave, the main part of the church is rebuilt by the pastors so there is a pastor connection there and that reason for that is at that point pastors had a townhouse um, on the site of on the site of but not the house the building that's there at the moment on the site of where um, Strangers Hall uh, sorry Strangers Club um, uh, is situated today. And when Sir John Paston dies, for example, in 1466, if I remember it off the top of my head without looking at my notes, when he's he brought up from London to be interred at Bromhall, which is where the Pastons were interred, um, uh, uh, on the north north coast, um, on the way there, he comes into Norwich and his body is rested here and we have the accounts for it. We know that an enormous amount of money was spent in terms of little boys getting dressed up in white smock, uh, white dress, dresses, as it were, and attending on the beer and one thing or another, and how much they spent on the candle and on the wine for the people who were doing the hard work, or the beer for the people who were doing the hard work. So one of the things is we, we need to see <laughs> that the um, air, this area, Elm Hill, as with many other areas of the city, is a very religious area. Uh, or, uh, or has very many religious institutions um, in this period. And there's a, one of the things that, that is one of the great advantages of working on Norwich um, is that we have these wonderful, you may not think it's wonderful, but I assure you, if you've got enough of them, they are. Um, this is St. Peter, Hung, uh, St. Peter Hungate, as drawn by John Kirkpatrick in the very late 17th mm -hmm. and the early 18th century. And that's the basis for his great perspective view of the city of 1720 and he carefully draws all these buildings and it often reveals a great deal as you may see later on. Now the other institution that as it were is linked to um, the parish church of St Peter Hungate I would argue um, is one of the very the, the iconic buildings somewhat of Elm Hill today um, which is the so-called Britain's Arms and it's, it's 15th century and it's one of the few buildings that isn't destroyed in the Great Fire of 1507. And what we think now is that it was a beguinage. And beguinage were very popular in the Low Countries, and you can visit them today. They're on a much larger scale than this. But um, it may well be that the three beguinage uh, that existed in Norwich in the late 15th and early 16th century were influenced by the existence of these beguinage uh, in the Low Countries, those connections across the North Sea. And Begrenage were buildings occupied by usually mature ladies, usually widows, who had much more control over their lives and their resources than did an unmarried or then a married woman. So you were just hanging around waiting for your husband to die off to go and whoop it up. 
Um, and in this case, um, or, in the, or in this case, um, what they're part of is a great reforming religious movement that sweeps across the Western Church, Western Europe, uh, in this period. And what happens is that it's a period of religious renewal um, and it is led and largely participated in by the laity and amongst the laity it is often women who take the leading role and what they do is that they devote themselves to um, holy uh, devotions but also to um, good works as it were and in a city of Norwich the thing is the city of Norwich offered an opportunity to exercise those good works because um, uh, you know there were plenty of poor hanging around that you could pop out the door and do some good works for and they had particular uh, wimple type thing that they wore and there are a number of depictions you can see of these these people and um, my good friend Carol Hill has written about this in uh, women and religion in late medieval Norwich and here we have a representative of in, in a, on a brass um, from St Giles's Church of Margaret Purden's uh, cloud in, cl clothed in what's called a valise's mantle so you could identify them by the sort of clothing that they wore. Um, and, but one of the things is that those women needed the services of male clerics because only clerics of course could uh, a priest uh, could perform the particular uh, the, uh, the, uh, the mass uh, and perform those religious services and it's people like this Thomas Andrew uh, who we have perpetuated today in terms of the glass that's in St. one of the panels of glass that's still in St. Peter Hunger. And what happened was, and this is what I'm speculating because we don't have any direct documentation, so here the evidence is the buildings and the relationship between the buildings. You've got this north door entrance to the church here and again I've drawn some older illustrations to make the point. At the, if you go in and have your quiche um, salad lunch um, it's all very 1960s still I'm pleased to say um, in the Britain's arms and if you go and have it on the first floor you will be able to sort of look out and go out through that door and that door would have given you direct access to the churchyard so the women who were in the Beguinage could go straight into the church uh, through the north door um, so that's how I read those circumstances now now the other thing I want to say something about, and I haven't said anything about this in public yet, uh, and so you're about to get it fresh from the archives, as it were. <coughs> and in looking at um, uh, Elm Hill, it occurred to me I'd better cast a glance at the Blackfriars, which of course is at the top of the hill, but in, in a sense is outside, it is technically out, outside the parish. So it was an ecclesiastical, what's called an ecclesiastical peculiar, um, which was occupied by the friars. Now one of the things that's at the Blackfriars um, is a chapel called St Thomas Becket's Chapel. And of course after the murder of Thomas Becket, very rapidly he is converted into a saint and he becomes a leading saint. And one of the things about being a leading saint was that you then had people going on pilgrimage to Canterbury but maybe you couldn't get all the way to Canterbury. So there were, as it were, ancillary places that you could go to. And I think the Friars of Norwich, to put it not too bluntly, cashed in on the popularity of Becket and ran up 
Beckett's Chapel, um, where you could go on a pilgrimage. And the other thing about Beckett is he doesn't just get one anniversary day, he gets three anniversary days. So there are a lot of festival days uh, associated with Beckett. Um, uh, it, it, and so the other thing is, again, is sort of mooching around uh, and looking at things, I discovered, which I didn't know before, uh, about six weeks ago, that there is a manuscript in the British Library um, which has this note, this reference to Beckett, uh, and then uh, uh, Thomas is rubbed out there. Can you just see it's been rubbed out in the manuscript? Reference to Thomas Beckett, and a lot of references to uh, the religious practices within the Diocese of Norwich, and it's also in the same style <coughs> as the Galston Psalter, and referring to masses in the diocese. So I do just wonder whether this manuscript was one of the manuscripts that was used in the religious devotions and practices that you would have had going on in Beckett's chapel. Now, just in case you, you're a bit hazy about it, it's worth making the point that the friary is, you know, we think of it as Blackfriars Hall and now St Andrew's Hall here, but it's that if you go down here, which is now occupied by um, green and pink haired art students, um, as part of the University of the Arts, that's very enlivening. And um, so there's a whole complex of buildings and the garth there with the, here with the cloisters around it. Now that's the area we're talking about, which is the chapel up there, which not much um, remains. Now it has been dug archaeologically, they have dug it, and that's how it appears today. And you used to be able to get into it, you can't at the moment. Again, a very useful drawing by um, Thomas Kirkpatrick and uh, of the chapel um, as part of the whole complex of building, looking from the north, um, looking as it were from the riverside. And what's interesting by then is it, it looks pretty domestic. And one of the things, of course, that Henry VIII didn't want was lots of devotions to a saint uh, who had actually opposed a king. Um, so all Beckett's stuff was very thoroughly destroyed, and that building, taken over as part of the complex of buildings and municipalised by the city, uh, in the 1530s when they paid uh, initially £81 for it, um, that building then was became, as it were, residential accommodation. Now, the other thing I discovered in the archives um, not many months ago um, was a photograph uh, taken in the 1920s, I think, if I remember right, and uh, it's of a painting um, that was done in uh, the 19th century, before in 1874, the city being very clean and tidy, decided to demolish uh, um, Beckett's chapel. But when you first look at it, it doesn't necessarily look like a chapel by then, because it had been converted to domestic purposes. But up here, can you see, oh, it's gone out of position, but can you see here the Lancet windows? And I think those windows were either for a secondary chapel above the ground floor chapel, or else it's where the friary had its library, because the friary was a very learned place and had a very extensive library, we know. So one of the things is then that the it would have been a chapel, and this is from the 1970s. I'm always horrified when the 1970s turns up in black and white and makes me feel terribly old. You know, <laughs> but, um, but anyway, this is in the 1970s, um, and that's been backfilled now and shows the remains or parts of, of the chapel. Um, and what happened is this, well this is what I think happened, the pilgrims will turn up in front of what's now St Andrew's Hall, they will then go through this entry here under what was called the walking way, 
uh, under this uh, a poly polygonal structure which comes down in blows down in 1712 and um, they would have gone down through there and then they would have come down the steps which you still can come down and do you remember there used to be quite a nice little coffee ha coffee house there and I really like their iced pink buns but anyway um, <laughs> so I was really miffed to see recently that it's been turned into an additional palace of weddings in the city um, anyway but uh, you, 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 so you can sit around there and you get the and clearly this is the route because also there's a holy water stoop that is just before the entrance into the chapel there so I think this is the route that was followed by pilgrims going in and of course when they came out you must get your traffic flows right they would come out into Elm Hill and standing under the elm which we know was there from way way back um, would be all the trinket sellers saying get your pilgrim badge here okay so um, that's that's I could go into that bit but I would better stop and that there is it is as uh, as I say a palace of weddings for those who want to do something radical like getting married but anyway um, uh, well yeah oops right now that then are, those then are two features of um, the the religious focus really at the top of Elm Hill uh, that I see a bit soon. But if we turn to the second chapter, the Great Fire and the equally great rebuilding of Elm Hill, and I'm going to argue something pretty radical. This is not what most people have thought, but I think I can make the case. Uh, and that is that the great rebuilding of Elm Hill creates a very, a very distinct type of space uh, within the city. Now we've got a really useful as it turns out, depiction of the city in Kirk of 1558-59. There's a copy in the uh, Heritage Library here by William, William Cunningham. It's one of the earliest, it is the earliest perspective view of any city in England. And if you look at it in detail, you can see that there's some, and, and I, I've had a research student do something on this uh, uh, some years ago, but this is my own work as it were. Um, this is St. Simon and St. Jude at the bottom. This is St. Peter Hungate. It's got its elm, or possibly two. Okay, so it's still there. So it's it, he, he, he is picking up on the detail, um, and and, and it's not entirely in proportion, but you can see going down here. And the other thing I'll just show you here, because I'm going to come back to this. Can you see all these buildings here, coming down to the river, right onto the river edge, and the barges pulled up on the river edge? Now that's not fantasy, as we're going to see in a moment. That's actually true. Because what happened after the Great Fire was that between about 1507 and around about 1540, <laughs> all those buildings on Elm Hill were, were replaced, but they were replaced by a particular type of building. And we see this in the early maps, so if we've got Elm Hill, Elm Hill Street as it becomes at one point. Can you see how the building structures go right down to the river and there are all these courtyards in between and something not dissimilar but on a smaller scale. Um, on the other side of the river. So what you get in the period, and again this is brought together from the town's atlas and shows the, uh, is a composite of a number of cartographic sources. And of course if you go and look out of someone's bedroom window today at the top of Elm Hill, as someone kindly let me do, um, you can see that what you've got is all these truncated structures that once, you know, there, there's a structure across the street in front of that. But this is looking back into what's now called the Monastery Car Park, which is called the Monastery Car Park to do with a complete nutter, religious nutter, in the um, 19th century. But I'm not going to go into him because he deserves a whole 
extraordinary story to himself. But I'm not going to. But the buildings here stretched right down to the river. And what was built there, um, what you had was a brownfield site, effectively, in 1507, 1508. Although perhaps we should call it a greyfield ash site, given so much that was burnt down. And what we survives from earlier buildings is usually the vaults. Um, uh, one or two vaults exist still that were clearly medieval, but were then incorporated into the later building. But what they built um, were courtyard houses. And this is a depiction of uh, a uh, Shelton Hall drawn from an original manuscript. Um, and it gives you, out in, down in the south of the county, and it gives you this idea of these courtyards that um, were de rigueur, as it were, when you had, had one of these buildings. Now, what, happened, what has happened is that these buildings in Elm Hill have at various times got divided up and chopped up and altered in a whole variety of ways. But this, for example, is a plot that was owned by the cathedral, and they, the monks didn't reside there, but they drew rents from it. Um, and then it's got chopped up at various times. And what you see is one of the very characteristic features is these entries into the courtyards behind. Okay. I'll come back to some of those features again. And so you've got these courtyard entries um, that uh, you can see right down there. And they're a very characteristic feature of many parts of Norwich, as I'm sure most of you know. Um, and this is one further downhill into Roach's Court. And they would also have uh, access control, so you've got a postum gate here for anyone who's on foot to, you know, wants to knock at the door. But to get anything decent in, you would need to open a larger door. Um, it's interesting that here you've actually got evidence of, and you see a lot of this, and I'll come back to it in a moment, you can see evidence of um, heraldic devices and shields and merchants marks that identified the building um, uh, but in some instances as here for example they've now disappeared um, but we, we've got a catalogue from 1847 where there are many many more around the city. Now another good example of what can happen to a building is number 18 at Elm Hill known to most of you I guess as the bear shop and as your children <coughs> and then your grandchildren start appearing you have to go and buy teddy bears and so this place is now of course stashed full of teddy bears and they're very helpful and they let me inside and poke around and do one of the different things but this this building at one time was oops this building was um extended this way but you wouldn't think that today because it's had an additional floor inserted so it looks like a single building but at one time it was part of a much larger range that ran across the front. The front, um, and the other thing, uh, so you you lose the sense of the grandeur and the scale of these properties. Um, and this is Augustine Stewart's house. Augustine Stewart is the Mister Fixit of early 16th century Norwich. He's the guy you went to if you wanted to buy a spare friary. He could fix it with the guys in London. He knew everyone. And um, th it's now the Strangers Club. Um, but when all the very when restoration work was done on this many years ago, plaster work was taken off, and what you've got is over-engineered timber. You just don't need that much timber to provide the flooring um, with the jetting out here, um, and then what you've got is expensive rather than lard and plaster, which you would have got on a lower quality building. What you've got is infill patterned brick knocking 
as it's called. Okay, Windows been messed about with, but but I won't go into that. So you've got some very prestigious fronts, and you would have recognised as you walked down that street that I don't know any of you know. Is it Bishop's Avenue in North London, um, which is occupied by mainly Russian billionaires and <laughs> footballers and you know people like that that I don't you know. Always, you can always park down there because nobody actually lives there. Oh, that's right. Oh, well, I, I bear that in mind next time I go to, to uh, Kenwood House yeah. or whatever. But anyway, um, the, 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 the that's the sort of sense you would have had of this really rather bling street uh, as you would have gone down it, particularly because there is really ostentatious display. And the thing is that elsewhere in Norwich, it was very difficult to put together a large site for a large building because the way the plots uh, that exist in the, existed in the city for over 600, maybe 800 years was that one building would go down another build, and it would be built up, but there are other buildings on either side of it. So getting control of a contiguous sets of plots it, it is quite difficult. Suddenly that's possible on Elm Hill because the whole damn thing had been burned down in 1507. Very expensive for ordinary people to rebuild their little houses, but possible for the big merchants to actually build big houses. So the thing I'm saying is that Elm Hill is unusual because it's what it's bam, 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 big courtyard houses. And you've got, if you look at it in detail, you've got seven of those courtyard houses on the north looking to, going down to the river, and you've got three on the other side. Um, uh, and, um, most people say that there are no inventories of um, Nor great Norwich houses, or there's only one that's known for what is Suckling's Hall today. Um, that's not true. Uh, when I turned my mind to it uh, about 18 months ago, in that time I found two inventories uh, for Elm Hill alone. And this gives you some idea of Augustine Stewart's house and the number of chambers and um, compartments as it were the house has um, down to the barge at the Watergate. Um, so if you remember the, the, the map we saw that, that there. So these are really big uh, prestigious houses that are a combination of residential accommodation but also as it were working accommodation in terms of the merchants and traders uh, uh, that we're talking about. Now the other thing that is that, that's misleading today if we go for a walk down Elm Hill um, is of course that they've all got it's all got to use a technical um, archaeological term tarted up um, <laughs> and um, uh, at various times and so in the 19th century um, if you go today down uh, 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 down Anthrop Road uh, Mill Hill Road and those areas of the city you'll see that the fronts of the houses um, have those yellow gold brick which is a very uh, which is an importation you, know, you really can only do it once you get the railway so you can import things and so if you've got an old house in Elm Hill you think god all these fashionable people now living in Colonel Unthanks Road um, uh, where he, he, he has tight leases and says that's what you've got to have the result is at the back of those houses any of you lived in any of those houses you will know that they use the cheapest red brick possible and you get terrible water penetration but anyway on the front it looks really posh so in Elm Hill, what happens is they tart it up, and so oops, they 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 use the they, they use brick down here. But of course, you've got the chetting up here, so that's not brick; that's tile mm -hmm. that they've done as tile. But behind that, of course, is you do have a proper use the term proper Tudor house. 
And if you go in, although they won't let me photograph it, um, if you go into uh, Strangers Hall, which has been renovated, uh, Strangers Club, it's called Strangers Club. If you go in there, it's got this fantastic uh, wood carpentry work. I mean, these are really high skill. The other thing behind all this is the artisan culture of skilled makers in the city, which I'm now not going to go into. Um, and so you have this, this fantastic roof. You can see the same in uh, you know, the Arteros Gallery, the music. If you go upstairs there, you've got that similar, really high quality timber work, um, which is, you know, you don't need it the whole scene up. You need it to show off to your visitors. Um, and that's, that's what this, this does. Um, that, that incidentally, I've now since I first got hold of this illustration, um, I discovered that it was. I think about what this was. Sorry, pressing the wrong buttons. What this was here, but actually, I've now discovered that's that's bits of timber because at the period that this was drawn, it was being not used by a, a builder's merchant. Um, so it's gone back uphill uh, in terms of the ups and downs. The other thing is that uh, very characteristically expensive display timber work is you get this roll, what's called rolled mouldings uh, on the um, exterior timber work as well uh, around here. There's certainly no replacement timber, but I think that one's original um, to Augustine Stewart's house. Now these are uh, photographs which I took um, with some um, trepidation uh, as it's in the taxidermist's house now, I don't know if you know the taxidermist, um, but what I thought was a stuffed owl is actually a real owl uh, to which he throws spare bits of the innards of whatever it is he's stuffing. Um, and so um, I, I, he, I said, he said, come in. He was very welcoming. He was very helpful. But one of the things you actually see here is, again, these rolled timbers, moulded, so-called. I mean, they're carved, but they're called moulded. It's make life complicated. A really a fantastic timber. This is across the road in the Pettis house. Uh, uh, Sir John Pettis's house on the other side, and again you get some, uh, some other, you know, and it's got very authentic cobwebs around. And the other thing it's got is, can't see it quite as well here, but can you see this grapevine decoration? So again, it's an ostentatious display of the chamber of the chamber that's set back parallel to um, the, 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 the street with the courtyard intervening. Um, and as a result of this concentration of buildings of this sort. What you get is a big concentration of the city's elite in Elm Hill in the 16th, 17th, and to some extent into the early part of the 18th century. Now, this is a map which shows the distribution of mayors in Norwich over the period 1403 to 1835. And as you can see, um, uh, St. Peter Hungate and St. Simon and St. Jude, uh, it's done by parishes, fall into, as it were, the, the second order category. But it, it's partly because the other parishes continue to provide mayors into the 19th century, um, which these parishes don't for particular reasons, which I'll come to in the So it is, a, it is a prestigious place in the city. And this is a list of some of the mayors um, who lived in uh, Elm Hill in the course of the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, uh, dominating them, of course, is, is uh, Augustine Stewart, who then, of course, moves around the corner. He has two houses, so the one we know now, um, um, on, t uh, on Tombland, um, it usually associated with the, the, the one that is the strangest club is the one that where he starts off, and then again the Pettises who actually had two houses uh, on Elm Hill um, at the bottom of Elm Hill, and, uh, and they have a rather splendid set of monuments in St Simon and St Jude as well. There's a falling off as you get into the 18th century uh, for reasons I'll explain. So these are the great 
and we hope the good um, of Norwich in the 16th and 17th centuries and rather severe looking Sir John Pesses here um, uh, uh, who uh, lived in that house at the bottom of Ellen Hill and the, they leave their marks around here for example it, it's, this is the beam the entrance to um, under uh, the Bresma beam under gives access under the um, Augustine Stewart house and there he leaves his mark so it's his mer merchant's mark which is an A can you see the A there and then wrapping round it is the S there, Augustine Stewart. And then making clear his affiliations um, uh, it, it, to the Mercer's Guild um, figure here, which is on the other end of the beam, if you've ever noticed it, um, and which we see again in terms of the Mercer's Company. So it's used in the Mercer's Company in London as well. Um, this is from Stowe's survey of London, 1633. Now the other thing that you get on the street furniture as it were in the city as a result of this concentration of large occupiers of these now new large houses it is um, a lot of heraldic and um, mercantile signatures as it were in terms of the, the, these figures and we really have to depend to some extent on the antiquarian records that are in the record office that are in part are here in things like the, the various collections in the um, Heritage Library collections to actually sort of uh, reconstitute what was there, and there are lots of drawings and illustrations. They're very, there's a great thrust of antiquarians in the late 18th, early 19th century that are busy going around copying all these things because there's another group of people in the city. I'm getting into something else I shouldn't get into here, but there's another group of people who want to modernise it all, want to demolish the city walls and take out the city gates and make us look like those new industrial towns in the in, in the uh, in the north. Um, but that prompts in some ways the antiquarian movement within the city leads to the foundation of the Northern Norwich Archaeological Society in 1846 for example. Well what the other thing is apart from the heraldic devices the other thing that you had around the city are aldermanic posts and those of you who lived in Norwich for off and on or been in Norwich off and on for about 50 odd years now will be familiar with the fact that the bollards have appeared around the city to stop cars going where only pedestrians are meant to go. But we need to recognise that the rather more decorative version of this is the aldermanic posts that once existed outside the aldermen's uh, houses. So once you became an alderman, you had one of these incredibly elaborate carved posts, or two on either side, placed outside your house. Um, this is the former Petter's house. It will, you'll see in passing the door, this door case again, um, but it's been modified later on. And this one of these posts uh, you can now see in the Bridewell Museum display because um, it has actually survived. Um, and another example um, from the magisterial presence. So one of the things is you're walking up and down Elm Hill and you are made very, very conscious of the civic order and the power structure of the city uh, as you went up and down that street. And the other thing that you would have seen in the windows of the houses as you went past, and that hasn't survived largely, is glass set in particularly their display windows to their great chambers for example of which you've got a reconstituted version here um, in, in Suckling Hall or similar cities we probably know better. Now the other thing is of course that there are two parishes, the street is spread across two parishes, St Simon St Jude and St Peter Hungate and in all of the city churches as you know you get these, these maestres and swordrests so when the mayor and the civic officials are processing or attending sermons or whatever, they are preceded by the sword bearer, 
um, uh, and the mace bearers, and then they rest these things, and then the parish records all the dates. Now these only go back to the very late 19th century, but I've got drawings in a manuscript that's in the United States now of by uh, by Thomas Starling of the way in which these things were being used in the 17th century. So they go back much earlier. And of course the other thing is that when you necessarily had to attend uh, church on a at the on a Sunday. Um, you would sit there and if you were in, in St Simon and St Jude and you looked up from your prayers and what would you see? You would see over on this side one monument to an earlier Petrus, and on the other side it's in fact two monuments and they got confused in some of the things but I'm not going to go into that today. Um, and this is absolutely wonderful thing is the Plunkett Photographic Archive which records so much about the city that's got lost <coughs> or you can't see it very well because 1953 to deal with the redundant church they inserted a concrete floor where the boy scouts could play British bulldog um, and throw one another up and down anyway as a result of which you can't see the whole of this in one go because of the floors intruding so I've used this earlier photograph and what we see today therefore in terms of the so-called Petters house this is a tiny part of it it went right through at the back, there was a courtyard entry, it um, went down here right to the uh, borders of the, um, uh, uh, of the church as such. Okay. So you've got these great houses, it's a concentration of the great and the good of Norwich, but then what happens? Well what happens is that by the time you get to the late 17th to the early 18th century, you're beginning to get enlightenment ideas spreading, and a great city like Norwich with great trading connections is going to be plugged into that European wide world uh, where the um, classical values uh, in particular in architecture are coming to the fore. And the result of this is um, that you've got enormous amount of money invested in these properties as we've seen uh, over the course of the 16th century, these rebuildings of the city uh, and partic particularly the buildings in Elm Hill. Um, but they don't look classical. Don't worry about that. Let's get some plaster out. And so what they do, and here is again a really rather splendid black and white photograph from the 1920s, I think it is. Um, and it, 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 this is the building at the top of, I think it's two and four Elm Hill. Um, and this is what they do. And we've got a late, 19th, late 17th century description by a visitor to Norwich, Celia Fines, who talks about um, how they pl they plaster on lards, which they strike out into squares like broad freestone. So they're basically tarting up their houses to look them, make them look as classical as possible. But don't, and, and of course that's what we see today with dormer windows. It doesn't feel that classical to me. But anyway, um, uh, that's 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 what they're going for. Uh, and it happens all around the city. Um, now the other thing that where you can do this is to the cheapest way is to do is to change your doors and your windows and those of you who can remember Norwich in the 1960s before Pilkington float glass came in will know what the golden triangle looked at like before they started putting in big windows yeah. um, and th sorry, this is this is um, the back of the uh, this is one of the great chambers um, in the Petters house or part of it it's been built with 19th century cottages there and as you can see, this particular sort of window just about survives. I'm very worried about the rot that's clearly in it and the vegetation growing in it. But anyway, this this um, 
is sort of windows that everywhere Norwich would have had in the Tudor period. So Dragon Hall, for example, it's evident from the, the peg holes that that's the sort of windows that they had in Dragon Hall in this period. That's what they had, and this is what they then inserted. My dear, you just have to have sash windows. They probably start in Norfolk in 1630 in the banqueting house at Oxford. It's built at Oxney, we think, around about that period. But this is a 16th century house with the, uh, known as the Flint House. You can see that it's jetty, but it's been boxed in, except where it's rotted there. And you've got a close-up photograph of that. And that what they've done is to simply insert sash windows. Okay? And of course, the other thing they've inserted is classicised door cases, which happens all around the city. Um, and the other thing, if you can go one better, is the internal arrangements of summer houses in the city changed, as a result of which you need to illuminate them, and the really most fashionable thing you can do is to have a, a Venetian window. Um, and this is one that's in Colgate, um, but looking at it from the outside, this is one that's in an extension to one of the houses, at the back of the houses, on Elm Hill. So you just have fashionable fenestration. And this is a sort of medley, if I can call it that, of door cases um, in Elm Hill, they're all in Elm Hill. This is the Pettus one, which you can see has been classicised sort of, uh, uh, um, incongruously. Um, um, and that's how you show you're, you're up to speed with the latest fashion. And you even get it um, in a very modest part of Elm Hill. Can you see they've tried to put in Doric columns um, to um, make it a bit more fashionable? And probably the best example that I'm going to take is to go back to the teddy bear shop. And uh, this is Henry Ninham. The Ninhams are wonderful in terms of recording the appearance of the city. And this is where the de Haags, the Elisha de Haag, the two of them, he originally lived at number two and then he moved into here. Uh, 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 and he was town clerk and then his son was town clerk in the 18th century. And can you see what they've done? They've got a really posh, um, classical, broken pediment with a classical statue on it, and all sorts of what they think is classical decoration, and my dear, we have got the classical windows. Um, so they put all this stuff in, by then they've also put another floor on the top, okay, and it doesn't look very Tudor at all. So, and then it's got, of course the other thing is it then gets stripped out. So in the 19th century, this turns into a chemist shop, so they put a 19th century shop window in the bottom. Um, so all that other stuff has gone. Um, and the other thing that you can see, it shows up best in the print from taken from the uh, illustration, but can you see that there's some effort to try and classicise it, making it look, look like stone? Nobody's going to believe you. Um, so that's sort of the changes that take place in the process of classicisation. But Elm Hill, that in a sense was uphill. We're now going downhill and this is Elm Hill on the skids and from really the late 19th uh, the, the late 18th into the mid 20th century you can say that Elm Hill along with a number of other central areas of Norwich are on the skids and there are a number of reasons for this one is that the great successful merchants like the Pettuses move out of Norwich they abandon their Norwich house in 1683 as you can see here he is in the late 17th century the very picture of a Norfolk country gentleman, but really the sign of a Norwich merchant, Norwich merchants. Um, okay, and they move out into the country. Another branch uh, has 
They moved to Rackheath, um, and there's no house remaining there now that occupied. But the house that another branch occupied is Caister Hall, um, which is uh, which still survives today. Now, so on the one hand, you get the posh people, you can put it rather crudely, moving out of the city. But the other thing is that you get an immense increase in population as there's a reindustrialization process uh, in the course of the uh, 18th century. And you can see this in, you know, it's a graph, it goes up, there are more people. Okay? And the result of that is that all those courtyards become infilled. And so you build extra little lean tos, cheap lean tos, inside these courtyards. Um, and you can see how dilapidated, although it's had a classical portico put on there on, on the side there, you can see how dilapidated they've got by the 20th century. And the other thing that happens is, the, and it's a classic way of dealing with uh, accommodating additional population, is this absolutely disgusting piece of building um, on the top of the Petters house, which is added in. So instead of having all those wonderful timbers that we saw below, it's got scantling timbers, cheap mouldy bricks, uh, and you can shove some more migrants into that accommodation and get some more work out of them, as it were. So, and by the 19th century, there has been this process of industrialization of Elm Hill, little small artisanal manufactories. Um, so you've got a blacksmith working in, I think it's the basement of Petter's house, um, and the house itself, uh, or the remains of the house, it combines, as it were, this industrialization, artisanal industrialization of Elm Hill um, with an emergent awareness of the historical background nonetheless. And so this early photograph shows both the scale makers who were there, who also were in Exchange Street, which is much more fashionable by then, and you've got this mini biography of the Petters family done in between the, um, uh, the, the timbers. Um, but of course the original house extended all the way down here to the court, to, to the church. And <coughs> this is the inside rights court. The names of the courts derive from occupants or owners in the 18th and 19th century largely and this is early 20th century and it's just inside here along here uh, that those um, grapevine timbers are that I was, I was showing you before. So the next phase we move into is what I would call the historicization of Norwich as a whole but certainly of Elm Hill and of the bottom of Elm Hill in particular. Um, that begins to happen really in the very late 19th uh, and early 20th century. And one of the reasons for that, again, is partly a reaction. Because by then you've got all these appalling slums that people are living in, these degenerated buildings. And um, the, the Holmeses have written this really, I think, very moving book about the slums and the slum clearances and the old courts and yards of Norwich as a whole. And they deal, in part, with those in Elm Hill. I find it a very engaging book. And this is the sort of thing that they are, uh, that the city fathers are thinking about clearing up. Um, and you then move out to sort of housing that you get along the avenues, to the, uh, you know, the, the now social housing along the ha avenues. And, but the other thing that you get, and I think the existence of this photograph is itself emblematic of this, the other thing that you get is, is a lot of people in the city and one could go into who these people are, E.A. Kent, the, 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 the um, architect and various other people, 
who are interested and aware of a historical city, even though it's reached a degenerate stage. So in a sense, this photograph itself is a piece of evidence of, of recording the, the demolition going on behind Elm Hill, but trying to make a record of it. And there is someone else, and I've not been able to identify him, doing some, oh, I can't find his sketches, I can't recognise the sketch, doing some sketches of the buildings as they're coming down. So there is a reaction to the clearance process, and there's an attempt to make it uh, to record historic knowledge as it's being demolished. And one of the key figures uh, in this rebirth of historical awareness of the historical city is Walter Rye, who of course has a street named after him uh, at Mile Cross, towards Mile Cross there. And he was an absolute nutter. Um, he, he, I, I, th th he's had a, a very um, useful biography written of him recently, but he was into all sorts of things. And the story is, for example, that when he was he was a solicitor in London, but he was up here and back and forth to Norwich, and, and he used to stay at the Maid's Head before he had a house in Norwich, first at St Leonard's Hill and then in Clarendon Road. Um, and he, he got very annoyed because, in order to bolster business, the uh, proprietors of um, uh, the Maid's Head were going to install a billiard table. And for him, billiard tables were anathema. So he bought it. I mean, not the table, he bought, uh, he bought the Maid's Head. <laughs> and, and, you know, so no billiard tables. And um, he bought the Maid's Head and he historicised the building. And he did what one or two other antiquarians did. It happened with um, Strangers Hall as well, which has got all sorts of bits and pieces that were put in there as they were rescued from other parts of the city. And so what he did was, we're into tarting up again, and he tarted the whole of the maid's head up um, <coughs> to make it look more chewed up. Um, and so all this, if you go and look at it carefully, is bolt-on stuff. Yeah? I mean, I'm sure you could get it on Amazon nowadays. Yeah? <laughs> and, and, you know, you want to chew the house? We will do you chew the timbers. In fact, you can get resin coffees of chew the timbers, you know, authentic mouldings. And um, anyway, he, he tarts it all up um, to make it look more Tudor. But the trouble is that by the early 20th century, Tudor had come to be West Midlands Tudor, Shrewsbury, what I call Shrewsbury Tudor. So he bolts on bits of Shrewsbury Tudor to authentic Norwich Tudor, um, for which he shall not be forgiven. Uh, and then everyone else gets into it. So on the other side of the road, as you may have noticed, um, there are, you know, there, there's more of it. There's more of it up here as well. Um, so the whole place gets Tudorified. And uh, then uh, the, um, the cock, which is the pub at the end, bottom of Elm Hill, um, it, it, it is, uh, uh, this is a sign, it's now, from the cock, it's now in the Bridewell Museum of Norwich, as I'm meant to call it nowadays. Um, but it's interesting what's done there. It's, it, it's, it's, again, it's Tudorified. It's using sort of Jacobethan sort of scroll work as the setting for it. Um, so there was this sense of the historic city. Um, and um, then the city, I think, during the early, or the hill, Elm Hill, during the early 20th century, gains, as it were, a new cultural identity as well. And that really starts at the top of Elm Hill with something we're terribly familiar with today, the place is crawling with them, which is, which is craft shops and things, you know. You, 
you can't visit a historic city with tripping over, without tripping over half a dozen craft shops. But the earliest one is the craft shop at the top of Elm Hill. And that was established by uh, Doris Jewson, who was a follower of the William Morris movement of going back to you know, handcraft manufacture, and she did weaving there. Um, and, and, and that's the reason why it's a bit pathetic in terms of its makeup. But it's the, that hanging sheep, and she copied it from this rather fine example, which again is now in the museum, um, which is a shop sign that came from David Place. But what it represented was that old craft, hand-skilled manufacturing tradition that, in a sense, she was propounding against the processes of industrialization. So again, very large movements not limited to Norwich at all, are actually embedded in what was happening in Elm Hill. So nowadays, um, we're known all over the place um, from these antiquarian drawings of people sort of sitting there doing his drawing there of, of, of the mess that was um, St Peter Hungate in the early, uh, in, the, in the 19th century. Uh, and incidentally, I should say that um, uh, when I've been looking at these things, I've been looking for, for the Historic Churches Trust for these things, I have to say, they've done a damn good job and the churches are in far better condition today than they were at any time in, in the greater part of the 20th century, uh, when St Simon's and Jude was completely covered with ivy, for example. So there's that. But if you look elsewhere, um, people come to Norwich and they paint it, and so you get the nice clear version of this. This is a painting that's now found its way to Sussex um, and then you get the fuzzy <laughs> historicised version of it which is a museum in Scotland and to a large extent through the tourist propaganda sorry publicity um, and the, um, the, 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 the images that are propounded I mean there's a lot of commercial use of the imagery of Elm Hill in the 19th century selling Coleman's mustard and things like that, which I haven't put in here. Um, but you get, as it were, this 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 elaboration of the hill to mean something historically. But I think you need to get behind all that present flimflam, if I dare call it that, and then see how you can use the history of the hill to talk about the history of the city and wider history as well. Thank you.